0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, well, as many of you know, uh, Steve, our pastor, is gone for three weeks, and Frank is gone for two weeks. So they asked me if I would preach uh, this week and next week. This, this week, our text is pretty straightforward. Next week is First Kings 13. I don't know if many of you know that. It's, it's a rather odd text. Uh, in fact, I was talking to my next-door neighbor last night, who grew up in the church. He doesn't go to church anymore. He's about 60 or so. And uh, I kind of gave him a quick synopsis, and he just looked at me like, yeah, that really is weird. So um, if you are ambitious and want to read 1 Kings 13, you're welcome to. Um, So this is, as many of you know, this is really just my second time here at Rock Valley Preaching. And I learned a whole lot of things, and I... um, there was a lot of mistakes I made the first time that I didn't make this time. Uh, one of them was many of you know and remember Gordy Bell. Gordy Bell was an elder here, but he had to. They were driving about an hour back and forth, so like essentially retired from being an elder. Uh, but at the beginning of, of the last time that I came up and preached, he came up to me and he said, "I mean, Gordy was is an, is an amazing man of prayer." And he said, "Darren, I've just been praying for you and for your message. I'm so excited to hear you." And I looked at him, and against my better judgment, I said, I thought I was preaching next week. Um, and the terror and the, the look on his face was just... Uh, so I didn't repeat that again this week. Uh, I didn't tell anybody that I was preaching only next week. Um, but if you would, if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews 13. We'll get to work. He- I'm sorry, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 14. If you would, if you would stand up as we read these, these verses. Uh, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, day, another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Lord, I am very uh, familiar and I know my inadequacies. Lord, so I just pray right now for your grace and your mercy upon me to speak only words that you would have me to speak. Lord, and I pray for grace and mercy for each listener here that they would hear only words that you want them to hear. I pray, Lord, that they would hear a far better message than the one that is spoken. And the only way that that's going to happen is through your Word and through your Holy Spirit convicting and ministering to each heart. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. As I was growing up, there was one thing I always wanted to be growing up, as long as I can remember. I grew up in Belvedere. This was back when there was only one high school. And the one thing I always wanted to be, more than anything else, was a football player on the Chicago Bears. But more than that, I wanted to play for Belvedere High School, be a Belvedere Buck. So in seventh grade, my parents let me go out for the team, and I was on the team. And the eighth grade team that I was on, the eighth graders, they were awesome. They uh, they ended up winning the national ch- or the not the national championship the state championship, their junior and senior year and so I was on the seventh grade team and uh, well, I was in seventh grade, but I was on their team with them and uh, and we were awesome so so now eighth grade year the quarter or the the coach against common rationale i don 't know why he decides that i'm going to be the quarterback for this team, and so I have all these Visions and these ideas of how great this year is going to be we would have been awesome my seventh grade year We're going to be awesome, especially because I'm going to be the star quarterback. I mean everybody's going to love me I'm going to be the most popular guy in school First game of the year We're dressed in purple tops white bottoms yellow letters Out of the the opponents visiting bus comes a team. I don't remember their name but they're dressed in all white. Now, some of you, if you know anything about, uh, about sports, when you dress in white, it makes you look bigger. Well, these guys needed no help. They were huge. I mean, we, a couple of the guys on our team had like peach fuzz and that type of thing. These guys had full beards, you know, they were good. Um, well, the first, ki- the, the, the start, here's the thing that uh, uh, kind of made it the turning point of the game, the kickoff, we got the t- opponent kicks off to us and I'm supposed to receive the ball. Well, for some reason, I break the cardinal rule in all of kickoff, is you never let the ball go behind you. Well, it got behind me, so I go and I pick it up. I come back, and I look, and all I see is a line of white-colored guys. And now, all of a sudden, there's three guys converge on me all at once, pick me up off the ground, and throw me onto the, onto the ground this only happens in the movies and 8th grade football. I mean, this doesn't happen normally in football games. Um, but I was, it was okay because I'm the star quarterback. I'm going to leave our team back to a victory. Well, I led our team to a rousing 72-0 defeat. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure. I was thinking about that this week. I don't really know how that's possible. I like I think they're only eight-minute quarters. I don't know how it's possible to really lose 72-0. to Um, I think I had one completion that game. It was to the other team. But, um, But as I'm walking off the field, I'm checking to make sure all of my joints and my ligaments are still functioning properly. But the thought came to me, how can something that is so promising go so bad so quickly? How can something that holds all of this hope and this, these dreams just shatter and break to the ground in a couple, 32 minutes, and 72 to zero a little later? I was in college. Fast forward now to my junior year of college. And I read this book. It's called Finishing Strong. It's had a profound impact on my life. It's a quick read. It's, a, it's kind of a men's uh, devotional book. And he starts off with this. This book uh, has changed my life in, in a lot of ways. And, um, but he starts off with this. He talks about three pastors in 1945. The first pastor, Chuck Templeton. He was filling auditoriums. In fact, one seminary, pastor said that, uh, one seminary president said this after hearing him speak. He is the, quote, the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. Packing auditoriums. There was another man, Bron Clifford. Uh, he spoke in Miami, Florida. People lined up 10 and 12 deep outside the auditorium trying to get in. Later that same year when Clifford was preaching at Baylor Chapel, the president ordered class bells turned off so the young men could minister the young man could minister without the without the interruption of the student body to the student body. One man said this of Of Ron Clifford Quote At the age of 25 Young Clifford touched more lives Influenced more leaders And set more attendance records Than any other clergyman his age In American history National leaders vied for his attention He was tall, handsome, intelligent and eloquent Hollywood invited him to auditorium To audition for the part of Marcellus of the Robe It seemed as if he had everything The third pastor 1945 They were all in their mid-twenties the third pastor, a little-known uh, little man of, by the name of Billy Graham. Five years later, 1950, where's Chuck Templeton? Listen to this. These are two of the most haunting paragraphs that I've ever read. It says this, just five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator and newspaper columnist. Templeton had decided he was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the term. By 1950... Five years later, he no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Christ. What about Clifford? Brian Clifford, nine years later, by 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, and his health, and then his life. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him in. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children. At just 35 years of age, this once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown hotel motel on the edge of Amarillo. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. He died, as Jan, John Hackeye put it, unwept, unhonor, unhonored, and unsung. Some pastors in Amarillo, Amarillo took up a collection among themselves in order to purchase a casket so that his body could be shipped back east for a decent burial in the cemetery for the poor. Nine years in, three men started out well. Pastors, preachers, Phenomenal ministries. Ten, twelve, people deep. Nine years later, there's only one standing. And the thought to me was, you know, there's, there's hundreds of examples that we could use in life, isn't there? Of things that start well. I thought of a hundred of, ex- of examples where things that start so well, have so much promise, and take a horrible turn for the worst. But, is there anything more significant than enduring in Christ? Isn't that the only thing that matters? Kids, if you only remember one thing as you grow up, remember that the most important thing in your life is your belief in Christ. And continuing to the day, God brings you to heaven. You know, I think this thought of, it seems to me that Christianity, this is our... In Christian circles, this thing of finishing strong is kind of our skeleton in the closet, right? We don't like to talk about it. If we do, we talk about it in theological terms called perseverance of the saints. Each side has artillery that they lob back and forth. But I think in some cases, it's a way to avoid dealing with how can we finish strong? What are the ways in which you and I can finish strong? But thankfully, the Bible is not silent about this. It clearly gives us warnings for this. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So we come to Hebrews 3. And I think this speaks directly to what we're talking about because there is this, this, the context is, is important to these first century Hebrews. They are hearers of the Word. They're professing belief, but they've endured trials. They've endured temptations, and they're thinking about turning back to the old way. They're thinking about turning back to, to the law. And the author and the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over and over, don't turn back. Hold fast. Hold fast. He said, listen, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, God has spoken in many different ways to our fathers. But then in verse 2 he says, but now he's spoken through his Son. And so he says in, in chapter th- uh, three, verse one: Consider Jesus. We go just a couple verses up. He says in verse six, verse th- chapter three, verse six: But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our, in our hope. So he's saying, hold fast. And what is this that we're supposed to hold fast to? Is to hold fast to Christ. So. I think in in the verses that we come to, I think there's three ways in which we can hold fast. Three ways that will help us endure until the end. I think the first one, the first way that we can hold fast is in verse 1. And that's, Watch your heart. Take care, it says, Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. If we go back to verses seven through eleven, he's using some people as an example of those who didn't hold fast, who didn't endure until the end. Let's look at verses seven through eleven. He says this: Therefore, the Holy Spirit, today, if you, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put Me to the test and saw My works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with this with the, that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a quotation from Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 is, a, is talking about another place and another time. And what he's talking about is these people, is, is the Israelites in the exodus. He's talking about this in Exodus 17. So David is 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 here in Psalm 95 and saying, Look at the Israelites in the Exodus. Don't be like them. Don't harden your heart. Or you won't enter the rest. And so we come to the the speaker of the author of Hebrews, and he's he's looking back to the Israelites in the Exodus and say, Don't be like them, don't harden your hearts. And so the exhortation and the application for us today is let's look back at the Israelites in the Exodus and say, let's not be like them. So if you go to Exodus 17, I think this is important. This is the only time we'll go flip back and forth. But go to Exodus 17. Exodus 17 says this. Exodus 17:1 says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And then we come to verse 7. It says this, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And there's the problem. Look in verse 1 of this, it says, they're listening and they're obeying according to the commandment of the Lord. But then in verse 7, the problem that we see, the way in which they tested the Lord, was they didn't believe. And it says, is the Lord among us or not? So if we come back to our text we see that the problem is an unbelief of the heart. If you go to a couple verses down in verses 18 and 19, he's talking about disobedience, and he's saying the, uh, the people didn't enter the rest because they didn't obey, because of disobedience. But why didn't they obey? Why did they disobey? Verse 19 says, well, it's because of their unbelief. And that's the problem. And I think, isn't it interesting that in verse 7 of our text, it says, the Holy Spirit says, And in verse 12, it says the living God. How many stories of people do you know in which they've fallen away or they've abandoned the living God? I was thinking about that. How does that happen? How do people start so strong and it turns out so badly? I think it starts with there's that living God, that Holy Spirit that speaks to them and they say, be quiet. They don't trust. They don't believe that God's promises are true for them at that point. They believe the idols in their lives are better than that. I have a college friend, and there was a, a, a number of times where his his mother came to campus where I was at school, and I always met her, met his mom, and I can honestly tell you she she is one of the sweetest, most wonderful, godliest woman women I have ever met. But I never met his dad, and his dad never came to campus, and so. One day I just said, hey, you know, his name. And I said, what's, what's the deal with your dad? What, where's, where's he at? And he proceeded to tell me to my shock and utter disbelief that his dad was a pastor in central Illinois. And at one time, his, his, I think it was his freshman year of high school, he decided that his heart desired the church secretary, and they ran off, abandoning his family, and he was abandoned as a freshman. And I can tell you dozens of stories that I personally know of people where that's happened to. So I ask you, is there something that you desire more than Jesus Christ? People fall away because of their hearts. Is there something to doubt God's goodness in your life? And so we need to look at our hearts and say, is there unbelief, is there some place where I'm testing the Lord and saying, is the Lord really know what's going on or not? Can I trust the Lord in this situation or not? Now here's what I'm not promoting. I'm not promoting this over-self-introspection. You know, I knew once knew a woman who said, I have paralysis of analysis. And it was true. Everything that she did, she analyzed and she overanalyzed. So she it just crippled her. She didn't do anything because she was always looking at her heart, saying, Is there something wrong? Am I doing this for the wrong motives? She did nothing. I'm just saying we need to have a wary caution of our heart because it can fall away from the living God. There was a time where it was about two years ago in my life where I was in a, at a position and everybody else around me, it seemed, to, was getting promoted, was getting uh, you know, pr- promotions and getting uh, better positions. And I was at a place where I was starting to desire the esteem of man in an unhealthy way those positions that everybody else was getting. I was starting to esteem, more. maybe more than anything probably, the money that came with those positions. And I said, this is not good. I'm not at a good place. So I came into work that day, and I listened to, I, I downloaded a message uh, by a pastor in Minneapolis called John Piper. And he, he was giving a biographical sketch on a, on a missionary called Adenaram Judson. A D. O-N-I-R-A-M, I think is his first name, Ab Judson. And the title of his talk was this, How Few There Are Who Die So Hard. He talked about the life of Ab Judson. <clears throat> and, I, and I'm listening to this on, at work. I was at a place where I could kind of be, you know, do my work but still be listening to this message. When Adinaram Judson entered Burma in July 1813, it was a hostile and utterly unreached place. William Carey, another missionary, had told Judson in India a few months earlier not to go there. It probably would have been considered a closed country today. So he goes, and as, as John Piper goes on, he says that, but when Judson went there with his 23-year-old wife of 17 months, he was, he was 24 years old, and he worked there for 38 years until his death. At age 61, with one trip home to New England after 33 years, the price he paid was immense. Listen to some of the points of a dinner Adventist life. He began a lifelong battle of 108-degree heat with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries that would take two of Judson's wives and seven of his 13 children and colleague after colleague of death. But listen to this. One website claims... Made the claim that 30 years after his death, Burma had 63 church, Christian churches, 163 missionaries, and over 7,000 baptized converts. So I'm listening to this message, and as I'm listening to this message, one of my coworkers comes over to me. And my coworker had just been to one of our vendors, and our this company, the the, the company that he had just been at, the the owner or the former owner of the company had just sold the company. He started it from the ground up. He had started it from nothing. He, he, and he, he had just sold it about two weeks before for $4 million. Well, this man decided that he wanted to take my coworker golfing. So he went and he picked him up after he, he, he bought a couple toys after he, he sold the company. And uh, he came up and he picked up my coworker in a brand new black Bentley. And. My coworker had taken a picture of it on his cell phone. <clears throat> so as I'm listening in my ear to a Dinaram Judson of him losing two wives and 17 or seven of his 13 children, in my ear, my buddy com- or my friend, my buddy it, who's my coworker comes over and shows me this picture of this black Bentley on his cell phone, and it was I just laughed because what my eyes were seeing and what my ears were hearing were so amazingly opposed but didn't they both finish strong i mean burma or judson for all of his trials for all of his, his his for all of the the trials and temptations he endured there's the claim of 7000 baptized converts when there were none before this other man he sold the company for 4 million dollars So they both finished strong, it's by what criteria? They both held fast until the end, but one lost everything to gain everything at the end. One gained everything and will lose everything at the end. And that was it for me. You know, there was that temptation, those those things, those unhealthy desires in my heart, and I knew that I needed to, to have my heart set right. And so listening to this and just seeing this incredible dichotomy before me of these two men so, it settled it for me at that time. And so I just encourage you, we need to have those situations. And I was done with my message, and uh, I, was, I was listening to this message again by John Piper. And there may be some of you who are going through a trial or a temptation. Uh, this might be just be for one person here, but he endured some incredible trials and temptations. And... Uh, maybe one of you, us can be encouraged by his life. It says this, and I'm quoting from John Piper. A dinner was dragged from his home on June 8th in 19, 1824 and put in prison. He was falsely accused of being a spy. His feet were fettered, and at night, a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and passed between his fettered legs and hoisted up till, on, till only the shoulder and heads of the prisoners rested on the ground. His first wife, Anne, was pregnant with her third child. The other two had already died. <clears throat> she walked two miles daily to the palace to plead that Judson was not a spy and that they should receive mercy. Well, then their daughter, Maria, was born. And Anne was almost as sick and thin as a dinner am, but still pursued him with her baby to take care of him as she could. Then on November 4th, 1825, Judson was suddenly released. The long ordeal was over. Seventeen months in prison, and on the brink of death, with his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him as she could. Anne's health was broken. Eleven months later, she died. And six months later, their daughter died. The psychological effects were devastating, obviously. He wrote in two different places. My tears flow at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome sepulcher of my own heart. He wrote to his family, and said, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. How do you endure temptations and trials like that? <clears throat> After their second wife died, Ann Judson wrote this incredible... Ann Judson was his first wife. He wrote the, she wrote these words, Our hearts were bound up in this little child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us from our only little all. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say it is enough. And then Judson went on. Adinaram said this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered, if, let me read that again. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, he could not have. I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. The pleasures of God were far greater than the pleasures of this earth, and that's what helped him. So I ask you, what does you, your heart desire? What stirs your affections towards Christ? You were made for these. Don't turn back. You know, and this is hard. I was thinking about a, a, a Red Mountain Church quote. They're, they're a group that takes old hymns and they put, they put them to, to new music. And it says, uh, it said, I didn't write it down. Um, I know what he appoints is best, but I murmur at it still. Right? Our problem is we know what God appoints is best, but we murmur at it still. Second thing, how do we, how do we hold fast I think the second thing is we hold fast to community. Look at verse 13. It says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Originally, this was only a small point in my message, but as I read and I thought about this, I read through all of Hebrews, and I think this is a huge part of what the author of Hebrews is saying. You need to be in community. Chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, Let us not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think chapter 13 in Hebrews is all about community. If you look at these verses, look at 12 through 14, it says, um, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. Verse 13 says, exhort one another day after today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This Finishing Strong is a community project. I think it's amazing that it's the responsibility of other believers to help believers finish strong. I think it's interesting and it's amazing that he's saying this to these Hebrews because already they're under Roman rule, so they're under, they're, they're under a foreign dictator and, and their rule. And also now they're part of the way, or they're, part, they're being called Christians so they're not part of the temple-going Jews. So they had, no, they had no choice but to be their own community. But he's saying it's not good enough just to be part of a community. You need to be a part of a community that helps and encourages one another to endure until the end. And I think this is hard for us to hear because I think aren't we fiercely and ruggedly individualistic? As one pastor says, your walk with God is intensely personal, but it is never meant to be private. And I think this is hard because we have a lot of these community things. We have Twitter and Facebook and blogs and uh, email. So we have this, these, all these social networking th- ways to, to be involved, but we really don't have that deep community that encourages one another to finish strong. I think there's three aspects to what he says about community. I think these are helpful for us. He gives us three things about community. Number one, he gives us the how. How can we act in community? Number two, the when. And number three, the why. Number one, how do we act in community? Verse 13 says, exhort one another. Or the NAS says, encourage one another. How was the author of Hebrews encouraging the believers to finish strong? uh, If you go to chapter 4, 14 through 16, he's talking about Christ being the great high priest. He says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of help and need. So I just say, we need to be part of a community. And doesn't this require time and honesty and openness? And I don't think this typically happens after a Sunday morning service. I think it takes place, and and the leaders of Rock Valley have said, you know, there's nothing magical about small groups. There's nothing, you know, ordained by that, other than we think that this is the best way in which we can hopefully facilitate a way that we as a community can help and encourage one another to finish strong. Now, I, full disclosure: I am a leader of a small group, uh, but you'll notice that this is not small group sign-up week. Uh, I don't have a thermometer here saying, "All right, 44% of you are in small groups. We're going to hold this up, you know, until 83% of you are in small groups for the next 10 weeks." I we don't I don't have that. I'm just saying we need to be part of a group that facilitates an enduring until the end. And can we just be honest and say that this is hard? I came across a quote this week that says, community is the place where the person you least like always lives. I think that's true. Community is the place where the person you least like always lives. But I also came across a quote by Kevin DeYoung that was in the Washington Post he says, We've been in the church our whole lives and are not blind to its failings. Churches can be boring, hypocritical, hurtful, and inept. The church is full of sinners, which is kind of the point. Christians are worse than you think. Our Savior is better than you imagine. So that is how. We need to encourage one another. That's why, you know, we're all sinners. That's the point, right? But we, we, we need to overcome that and we need to see the importance of the how to endure until the end. The second point, when, it says, today, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, I've, somebody has said to me before, you know, I'm going to do this for the next two years, and then I'm going to get serious about God. Well, the problem is this. As we look back at our first point, your heart can fall away from the living God. So you, the, my encouragement is you don't know what's, where your heart's going to be in two years. So today is the day where you cannot harden your heart. I think it's important I think it's he talks about the importance of the present on a future time. And then lastly, he talks about the why. Why do we need community? We need community because you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How is sin deceitful? I think there's two ways in which sin is deceitful. You know, sin is funny because in some ways I know sin in my own life better than anybody else because I know of all my evil desires and my thoughts that nobody else really knows. But sin is devastating and deceitful in another way in the sense that there's a lot of sin that I don't see, that I'm blinded to, that people in community and people that know me well see far better than I do. There's sin that my wife sees in my own life that she's much more apt to see in my own life. So, the, so sin is, is deceitful because you, you don't see it as well as others. But I think there's a second way in which sin is deceitful. It's deceitful in the sense that it, you think, well, man, nobody else is going through what I'm going through. If everybody else if anybody else thought or knew what I thought or knew the sin that I have, I'd, they would, I would be ousted. I would be Banned from ever coming back. I think that's the deceitfulness of sin. The point is, we're we're all sinners. That's kind of the point. But our Savior is far better than we can ever imagine. And if you aren't convinced that you need community, maybe this will help. This is another quote from Finishing Strong. There's a quote from "Finishing Strong." Howard Hendricks was a is a is a professor, I believe he still is a professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He interviewed 246 men in, who were in full-time ministry and experienced full moral failure. He interviewed them all in two, within a two-year time. There were two things that were common amongst every single one of them. 246 men. Number one, without exception, each of the 246 had been convinced that moral failure, quote, will never happen to me, unquote. Number two, none of them were none were involved in any kind of personal accountability group. So they all thought, hey, I don't need this. I'm good, I can go alone. They all failed. We need community. And I think it's a word that we need to hear, especially they needed to hear at the, at the original Hebrews because they said, you know, hey, just meeting together and just being this sect of the, of the, Jew, of the Jews who went to the temple, you need to be in a, a group that helps each other endure until the end, to hold fast and not go back to this, this old religion. And that's all it is. It's a religion. So it is with us. We need to encourage. It's a responsibility that none of you, Fall away. So this isn't a pep talk. This is for people who understand and know their heart and they need help. They need community and they need to trust in Christ. They need a Christ-centered heart and a Christ-focused community. So I come to my last point. How do we hold fast? Number three, hold fast to Christ. The NAS says this, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance firm until the end. Now, a clarification on this verse. This doesn't say um, you will share in Christ this future time. You will share in Christ if you continue until the end. No, it's saying, hey, you already have shared in Christ. This is a past event. You have shared in Christ, or you have become a partaker, if you continue until the end. So he's saying the evidence that you have, this past experience that you've shared in Christ, is that you will continue. So the opposite of this is, I think it's this: if you don't hold fast, if you don't hold fast until the end, you never were a partaker of Christ. That's the opposite of this verse. If you don't hold fast to the end, you never shared in Christ. Chapters three and, and four are kind of a they're, they're a parentheses, or they're not a parentheses, but they're all about chapter three and four is about Christ being the great high priest. There's, two, there's, a, there's verses that bookend 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verse 17, says talks about our high priest. He says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then I already read verse Chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, For since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Don't you see that Christ lived the life that we should have lived? And He died the death that we should have died. And in that, He purchased for us clean hearts and new hearts that can finish strong. And He purchased for us a new community, a Christ-centered community that can hold firm until the end. So if you continue, it's only because of His grace and mercy. Ezekiel 36 is a beautiful chapter. Ezekiel 36 is talking about Broken things being mended about God coming and setting those things that are rebellious and making them right. He's talking about uh, things that are crooked and making them straight. And in this, in Ezekiel 36, he says this, verse 25. He says, thirty-six twenty-five says, I will, sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." It's only through Christ that He can give us and clean us and give us new hearts. So I'm not naive enough to know, to think that there aren't some people people who aren't finishing strong and have no desire to. My exhortation to you is there's no more important issue than finishing strong. Finishing strong and enduring and holding fast to Christ until the end. But there may be some of you who are proud because you're doing all the right things and you're finishing strong. My question to you is, what's your original confidence? As one person I was talking to this week said, you know, I go back and I think about when I was first saved and that joy about that. It was all about Christ. Christ was the one that saved you. That, he was your original confidence. What's your original confidence now? That You're doing all the right things? Take heed lest you fall. Christ is your only hope. Then there may be some others that are trusting Christ. I just say continue, because there's never a time, right, that we can say we've made it in this life. There's never a point where we can say, hey, I've finished strong until it's over. But maybe there might be some of you that think they've failed so badly that you can't finish strong. The point of verse 14 says, if you share in Christ, he's your original assurance. He's your original confidence. So my question to you is, if you think you failed so badly, what is your confidence? Look at the Bible. It's Christ. Christ is your confidence. It's not in your failings. It's not in what you've done. It's not in what you haven't done. Christ is our original confidence. He's our assurance. On the back of the sermon notes, Michelle put this quote, I would just like to read it. I think this is a beautiful quote that I'll end with. It says this, Jesus is the best hiding place and covert for the tempest of an agitated conscience. When the lightning of conviction flashes upon the soul and guilt with its thundering voice spreads its dark folds over the mind, nowhere but in Jesus can be found a covert from the bursting storm. To what other refuge can a sinner fly when the horrid nature of his rebellion is laid open before him? At what time his ingratitude to the God that made, redeemed and perseveres him appears? At what time he is terrified and confounded by the frequent repetition of his sins and the obstinacy of his corruptions? At what time guilt, superadded to guilt, rolls its dark wreaths over the soul like clouds that return after the rain. Nowhere but in Jesus. And that's what Judson rested on nowhere. But in Jesus can he find a refuge from the gathering tempest. The blood of Christ sprinkled his conscience from dead works, has a wonderful power to relieve from the pangs of a conscience guilt. It is the sovereign balm to his wounded spirit. Give me Jesus or I die, cries the agonized soul. None but Christ, none but Christ. Take away that cloud that I may see him and I shall live. What other refuge can a soul find that is racked with guilt? Let him go to wealth. His honors, his pleasures, they are all unsavory ashes in the mouth of a man dying with hunger. Let him go to philosophy. It is a stranger to his case and knows nothing either of his griefs or his wants. Let him go to speculative divinity. It is no physician but only a corpse laid by the side of a dying man. Let him go to the courts of the Lord. Let him go to his Bible, to his knees, and all all without Christ are nothing. Let him go to God, and God out of Christ is a consuming fire. But let him only come in sight of Jesus and get near enough to touch if it be but the hem of his garment. And all his pains are instantly relieved. The fire in his conscience is quenched. And he is as much at ease as though he never felt a pain. Edward Griffin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray right now that we would have a healthy fear though we may profess belief in Christ, if we do not endure until the end, we never share it in You. So I I just pray that we would Watch our hearts. We would hold fast to community. And in those, we would always be relying on Christ. Give me Christ, or I die. How true it is, if we don't have Christ, we don't have any other hope. So I pray that we would hold fast to Christ, and we would all take the responsibility of helping each other finish strong. We pray this in your name. Amen.